bread. Because of what? Just trying to Thank you, worship team. Appreciate that. Wonderful. Let's open the Word of God, please, to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. I want to start with a, a thought question. And I want you to think about the answer, Linda, but don't, don't shout it out. Just all over the auditorium, if you would. Um, in your opinion, in your personal opinion, which New Testament command is the most difficult for Christians to obey? Maybe it's especially difficult for you and you've seen it difficult in other people, or maybe it's not a big issue for you, but you've just noticed it tends to be a problem. So, in your opinion, which New Testament command is the most difficult for Christians, real Christians, not fake Christians, not pretend Christians, not I didn't really believe Christians, real Christians, to obey? Think about that. I don't know. Um, it'd be fun if we had more time for everybody to jot it down and we could compile it and see what everybody's saying. But I don't know if this is the hardest most difficult command for Christians to obey. But somewhere in that conversation, I think we'd have to say Romans 12, 15, which says, rejoice with those who rejoice. And I've commented about this many times, but why would I say that? I think we're all pretty good at weeping with those who weep, but rejoice with those who rejoice. Uh, for example, if you work really hard at the job, five days a week, six days a week, for Dale it's seven days a week, and you're underpaid, overstressed, and underappreciated, and your manager or your boss or the owner, whoever you have to deal with, is rude, crude, and nasty, and you're a Christian, and you pray about it, and nothing much changes, and then like a good Christian, you show up for a prayer meeting somewhere, and, uh, of course, you always have praises and answers to prayer first before we have petitions and requests, right? Right? So you're walking in there, another tough day on the job. You've been browbeaten, and you really uh, just hate the situation at work. And somebody says, hey, can I share a praise? Would it be okay if I shared a praise? And you know what? That's a dumb question because nobody's ever going to say, no, don't share your praise. We're going to move on to the problems. No, of course. Yeah, sure. Share your praise. Well, guess what? This guy says, I just want to praise God for my job. Amen. Praise my boss. I've got the best job ever. I just am totally stimulated. I enjoy every second on the job. My boss is so wonderful. Uh, she's always telling me how great I am. And you know what? Not only do I get regular pay increases, but my boss gives us little surprises, you know, like in our mailbox, like trips to Hawaii and stuff like that. And I just want you to praise God with me for a wonderful job I've got. Now, i got to tell you, unless you're, you know, more powerful than a pope, it's going to be very tempting for, for the first guy to sit there and not be filled with self-pity. Why do I have such a crummy job? And even to actively resent the guy who just shared his praise for his great job situation. That's just kind of human nature, I think. But I think we do it because... 
we compare our situation, which isn't good, to theirs, which sounds fantastic, as if they're apples and oranges. As, as, as if they're both apples, I should say. Let's get the analogy right, Brad. And really, that's not fair. Because God's got a different purpose for Shauna than he's got for Debbie McCoy. Or a different uh, purpose for Krista uh, Bowles and for Nancy Postlewaite. And any time you compare yourself with other believers in those kind of areas, you're not giving God the room that he's using as he constructs and works out his plan and purpose for each one of us. Each one of us will have some adversity tests in our lives, and each one of us will have some prosperity tests in our lives, and they're going to be different. You've got a different set of uh, courses uh, for, for Joe Patton than he does for Ginny Heath, and that's just the way it is. So anytime we forget that fact and presume we know more about what's happening than God does, and second-guessing, we're going to have problems. So today in Acts chapter 12, we're going to see a classic case where it would be wrong and sinful and damaging for people to compare what happens to James, not James Mitchell, but the Apostle James, and Peter. They're going to get two different uh, circumstances come into their lives. And we're going to say, the big take home today is, hey, Mimi, dare not to compare your situation with anybody else's because God's got a unique purpose and a plan and we just never have enough information to legitimately second-guess God, right? So let's pray that we'll be teachable to Acts chapter 12 and that basic lesson today. And we want to pray for our, uh, not just our teachability, but for our troops, our peace officers and firefighters. Right in the middle of that collage is my man David Moore. Sitting back there, happy to be here. He's just driven like 57 miles with 18 people uh, in a van to get here. So it's always a good good thing to see them. Uh, and I think, weren't they babysitting some of your sisters today? Yeah, so they had more than usual, didn't they? So you get an extra star by their name this week. But uh, I, Ken Wanzer, pray in that direction for us, would you? Thank you. Um, you know, for the last couple of weeks, we've been doing kind of this dueling top five list thing, right? Uh, James, I mean, uh, three weeks ago, I did top five reasons James Mitchell's a world-class youth minister, uh, only to realize once I was about halfway through the list that he was roller skating with the youth, so he didn't hear it. So two weeks ago, when we were in Puebla, he did a top five list, top five things. I was thinking when I did that list, knowing James wasn't in the room. And so last week, I did uh, five more reasons he's a world-class youth minister. And I started thinking about that this week. And you know what? We need equal time because, I mean, I need equal time because basically all these lists have been really about you, James. So I've come up with a, uh, a special top five list, and this is just to stimulate your capacity for abstract thought before we look at the Word of God. Uh, top five reasons Brad McCoy is better than James Mitchell, Chuck Wendell, and the Apostle Paul. Uh, those are the reasons. Yeah, if you're listening uh, on the Internet or on a CD, uh, it's a blank screen. Because I'm not better than James Mitchell, Chuck Swindoll, or the Apostle Paul. I am different, and God has a different schema for me than he does for James or Chuck or for uh, uh, the Apostle Paul. I would say James, Chuck, and the Apostle Paul uh, are world famous, 
have world-class skills, a world-class passion for the Lord, and they're apples. And I'm just an orange over here. I'm just kind of a one-trick Bible-teaching pastor pony person that does the best I can with the few cards I've been given to play, but I play them as best I can. And I think that's a good illustration of kind of the way God's looking at James, not James Mitchell, but the Apostle James and Peter and his purposes and plans for them. Because we're going to see in this chapter the execution uh, by the sword of the Apostle James. One of the twelve apostles is executed by political uh, forces in Jerusalem. And then when they line Peter up to do the same thing to him, he miraculously, supernaturally is uh, able to escape. Uh that probably doesn't look fair to James's mom. Uh, James's mom, Salome, lived in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, they were a well-off family. Uh, the fact that James and John did some fishing, they, they did fishing so they could watch the overall operation. They weren't afraid to get their hands dirty, but they were from Jerusalem originally. Uh, their mom is well-off. And I got a feeling that Salome and the church prayed just as hard for James when he got arrested that he might be delivered and he gets his head chopped off. And then Peter gets arrested and the church prays. And God sends an angel and Peter gets 20 more years to do his thing. And that looks almost like God goofed, but he didn't goof. If they were both apples and we all had the same plan and purpose, it would be a mistake. But one's an apple and one's an orange. And God's got a different purpose for each one of us. We're going to look at the chapter. First, we're going to see the death of James, the execution of James, the apostle, the deliverance of Peter, uh, the death of the persecutor, uh, King Herod Agrippa I, and then duh, postlude. So we have death, deliverance, death, and duh. That's important, right? Look at verses uh, 1 and 2. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Now about that time, about the time that the Christians are being called as an insult, Christians in Antioch and the church in Antioch, have gotten a word about a coming famine, and so they're raising support and sending it down to Jerusalem. Since we're sending money, notice verse 30 of chapter 11, uh, they did this collection of funds in Antioch, about 200 miles north, uh, of 250 miles north of Jerusalem, sending the money to help the church in Jerusalem in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders in Jerusalem. Now about this time, about the same time that's happening, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. So this is the first time we've got political forces, not just religious forces, in Jerusalem putting the heat on the church. And he, that is King Herod Agrippa I, had James the brother of John, Peter, James, and John. Um, Those are the inner circle. Uh, James has been quoting a Christian comedian who says, you know, you got the 12 apostles, right? And Peter, James, and John, and a lot of times when Jesus does special stuff like transfiguration, which three get to come to that? Peter, James, and John. So we typically assume they were the most, they were the closest to the Lord relationally, and maybe they were most uh, plugged into the plan. But a James theory is, no, those were the three troublemakers, and the Lord just couldn't leave them alone. So he always brought them with them so he could keep an eye on them. But yeah, this guy's at the very center of the church, and you might think, what kind of a testimony is this to the unsaved world that this, this political hack that's, you know, serving the Romans really can grab this guy and have him executed? Why didn't God do a miracle? Because that wasn't God's purpose for James. Or
or James Mitchell, hopefully, right? Um, yeah, and he had him put to death with the sword, which is capital punishment. Uh, real people, real places, real events. Nobody's making anything up here. Uh, we've all heard of King Herod the Great. Every Christmas we hear about Herod the Great. How come? What Herod the Great do in connection with the birth of Christ? Yeah, he killed all the babies two years and, and under. You might think that's overkill, Mel, but remember when the wise men came to Jerusalem, apparently they said, we saw the sign about two years ago. So he's not taking anything you know, for granted. So Herod the Great had a whole bunch of kids, um, had a couple of them killed because he was so paranoid. Uh, but Herod Aristobulus was one of his sons, and he had a son that we call in history Herod Agrippa I. That's the one we're talking about here. So Herod Agrippa I is King Herod's uh, grandson. And uh, you can read about him in any secular history book. He was not a bad administrator. Uh, he went through the uh, traditions of Judaism to make friend, uh, points with the, the uh, Jewish people in and around Jerusalem. But very doubtful he was very much of a spiritual guy and very much under the thumb of the Romans. In fact, uh, Herod Agrippa I grew up in Rome. His dad sent him there to cultivate contacts with some, some of the, his, his wives, uh, uh, Aristobulus' wives. And uh, an interesting childhood friend that Herod Agrippa I had was a Roman by the name of Gaius. You know him better as Caligula, 37 to 41 A.D. He uh, reigned in, in very horrible fashion over the Roman Empire. And now, of course, we're dealing with Claudius. And uh, Herod Agrippa, as a young boy, would have known Claudius and his family there in Rome. So uh, about the same time, great things are happening in Antioch and superlative generosity is being shown for the mother church, the original church, the apostle, the apostolic church of Jerusalem. We get political uh, people like Herod turning on the church for no other reason but to make points with the power that be, and he has James executed. So that's the death of the apostle James. Right? Now let's look at the deliverance of Peter. Look at verses 3 through 19. When he, that is King Herod Agrippa I, saw that it pleased the Jews. The Jews isn't an anti-Semitic slide against all of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a reference to the Jewish religious elite that have power uh, over the people. So when he saw that it pleased a major part of his constituency, the Roman, or excuse me, the Jewish religious elite, he, that is King Herod, proceeded to arrest Peter also. So watch this, Monica. King Herod uh, arrests James and kills him. And everybody's happy. The Jerusalem Post says, horrible anti-Jewish zealot executed. Thank you, King Herod. So he arrests Peter. I don't know who sets these chairs up, but I hope he doesn't get mad that I'm moving them around. Uh, so he arrests James, whacks him, arrests Peter. What's he going to do to him, Jack? He's going to whack him. That's the plan. Same song, same song second verse. I'm kind of obsessive-compulsive, so I'm not going to leave those guys out there. So you'll know. But I will leave that down before. Okay. So yeah, it looks like it's going to be curtains for Peter, too. I mean, why not? All right. So when he saw that it pleased the Jewish elite, 
he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. Passover was followed by a seven-day uh, festival called unleavened bread. The whole eight-day period can be called the Passover, as in the Passover season, although technically Passover, uh, as you know, Exodus 12 commemorates the passing over the death angel right before the release of uh, Israel from Egyptian slavery. So it's an eight-day period when no Jewish person would want executions. Let's do our religious thing first, and then you can kill all these Christians. So he's arrested when uh, it wouldn't be possible to execute him, so we've got a couple of days to wait. And uh, the the great thing about miracles is it's never too late for a miracle. It's never too late for a miracle. And um, so sometimes people give up. I, I never give up, man. Just refuse to, refuse to lose. When he had seized him, he put him in prison. That is, Peter was put in prison. Delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Intending after the Passover season. They have Passover, seven-day unleavened bread, called the Passover season. Couldn't execute people during that period because... the that would give you religious cooties. So let's wait till right after that eight-day period, intending after the Passover season to bring him out before the people and summarily execute him. A couple of things here. Um, look at verse four. Riley, who is this? Who is this guy they've arrested? What do you know about Peter? What do you know about Peter? Was he like? Uh, he's called the big fisherman based on church tradition. Blanche, we're not. We're not sure. But suppose he was a big, burly guy, and he obviously had a powerful personality. And by the force of his personality, he was kind of the unofficial leader of the apostolic band. And by band, I don't mean like the Beatles, like they're playing music necessarily, although they, some of them probably played to you. What was all that stuff you were playing today, Riley? I mean, this guy plays everything, man. Uh, uh, that's, that's awesome. But watch this. They're treating this guy as if he's the Frito Bandito or something, like he's really a bad dude, because rather than just throwing him in a holding cell for a couple of days, they have four squads of soldiers. I'm not sure how they break it down now in the U.S. Army, but a squad in the Roman Army was four guys. So you got 16 guys. You've got four groups of four groups of, of, of four groups of four guys. That's 16 total, and they're doing six-hour shifts. So every six hours you get new ones. And as you read the narrative, they were chaining one uh, soldier to Peter's left hand and another soldier to Peter's right hand, and then they had two guys guarding the door. Now, they're taking superlative measures to make sure escape is impossible. Uh, what do you think that is? This shouldn't be that hard. This should be like a, a milk run. should be no problem. Well, back in chapter 5... Peter had been supernaturally delivered from being held overnight. So they're saying, we're not going to let any, we're not sure what happened there. It was like a UFO sighting of them. Something happened, but we can't, we don't know what it is. But, uh, you know, God had delivered Peter previously. That's not going to happen this time. We're going to make escape humanly impossible. Verse five. Uh, So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer, so we got prison and prayer for him was being made fervently seriously, intently, by the church of God. And the cool thing about this is we know exactly where Peter was located. Uh, this is a, a schematic of the of the temple in Jesus' day. And the temple face, faces east, so the Mount of Olives is here. That's south, that's west. 
the wailing wall is the outside part of that wall, but go down a little bit. And when you visit uh, and go see the wailing wall, you're out here and you walk in there. And so that's south, east, west. That's north. It's all, this is the, the Temple Mount, right? It's all about Jewish religion. What's that? That's the Fortress Antonia. The Romans had built a fort uh, on the northwest corner of the Temple Mount so they could watch, because you get hundreds of thousands of people in here and there could be riots, and the Romans don't want riots, and they had prison in there. Uh, so Peter's right there, right next to where the action is for all the religious elites, but being held with the human certainty he's about to get killed as soon as the religious holiday passes. Now watch this. Verse 6, on the very night, the, the night at the, the end of the unleavened bread, when Herod was about to bring him forward the next day, Peter was stressed out, wiped out, concerned, moaning, crying like a little baby. No, you couldn't make this up. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Now, David, i got to tell you, Peter has a, we know he's got a tendency to sleep when he ought to be praying. Remember, because when they get to the Mount of, I'll live as a garden of Gethsemane. Uh, you know, he has Peter, James, and John. You guys, everybody pray, but you guys especially pray. And when Jesus checks on him, what's he doing? Taking a nap, you know. So uh, Peter's probably sleep deprived, you know, whatever. But uh, yeah, uh, most of us would be sweating it out. Uh, I got a feeling this guy is just, he's seen enough of the power of God, Blanche, in the aftermath of the resurrection. He says, you know what? I'm in a no-lose situation. As Paul would later say in Philippians, for me, to live is Christ and to die is not a tragedy, but you know, death is not should not be a crisis for the Christian's faith. It's the it's the climax of our faith, right? Uh, and I'm not wanting to go to heaven this afternoon necessarily, but uh, you know I'm good to go. I remember after Bob Shallow accepted Christ, you know he was a pilot in World War II, and and uh, you know being good to go is very is a significant thing for a pilot. That means you. You got your game plan. You got your your course. Your, your where you're going to be going. Uh, the plane's all gassed up. It's been checked. Everything's good. Everything's in operational uh, status. And he said, "Hey, now I'm good to go." So Peter's good to go, and I think you've got a guy who's just resting in the providence of God, uh, and so he's fast asleep between two soldiers, bound with two chains. Again, this is extraordinary security here, and two guards in front of the door watching over the prison, and behold. I'm not sure what time it is. Midnight? Two o'clock in the morning? We know a prayer meeting is going on. I think they're praying all night this night. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly stood, suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. This is supernatural. Can't reproduce this in the laboratory kind of stuff. And you wouldn't make this up, you know. He struck Peter's side. The guy is so deep asleep. You can't wake him up. Big light. Probably a boom when the angel shows up. And Peter's just you know, and the angel's got to, come on, man, wake up, man, we got things to do. I mean, you wouldn't make this up. Struck him on the side, woke him up and said, get up quickly, like you'd say to a little kid, you know, because he's kind of groggy, you know, what, what's going on, you know. Uh, and his chains fell off his hands. It sounds like Star Wars, but it actually happened. Uh, and apparently the, the soldiers are just in some kind of animation state where they, they just aren't aware what's going on. Or you might say they're asleep, but I get, with all the commotion, I think it would have woke up. This is some kind of supernatural screening. And the first Star Wars movie, remember, was uh, 
was that Obi-Wan Kenobi and Luke kind of go through a checkpoint and Obi said, watch this and they say, show us your papers and shows them something. And he says, go on through. And it's like they don't really realize who it is. That was a bad summary of that. That's the only one of the, of, they've made like 18 Star Wars movies and there's more coming and I watched the first one when I was a very small kid. I was like five years old. Um, it was, I remember it well, 1975. Okay, now, but it was that kind of a thing, but it actually happened. Uh, and he says, uh, gird yourself, put your outer cloak on and put on your sandals. We're out of here. And Peter did so. What's he going to do? Uh, and he told him, the angel said, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow the angel. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. Remember, he saw a vision of the tablecloth coming down with the non-kosher food. He's seen visions and it just has an unreal, I guess it would, when something like this, which totally blows away the conventional laws of physics is happening and it's two o'clock in the morning. It's just like too good to be true. And he's just saying, you know, wake me up, pinch me, and uh, you know, let me know this is uh, really happening. But he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard or at their cell, they came to the main iron gate that leads out to the city, which opened for them by itself. This is before you put a code in and it opens, or the garage door opens, or you push a button. This is supernatural. Uh, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel is dis- gone. It's the way they kind of work. They're kind of like the Lone Ranger. They don't hang around so you can tell them how great they are. And really, we ought to do more of that ourselves. Just do the right things without reason and don't stand around waiting for people to tell you how great you are. Uh, some of them will figure out later. And the ones who don't, you know, who needs them? No, don't, 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 not like that, but yeah. When Peter came to himself, when he kind of totally woke up, I'm so old now that when I wake up in the morning, I mean, it takes about 10 minutes for my eyes to start working. I mean, everything is really fuzzy. i got bad vision to start with, but everything's really fuzzy. Now, now Shelby's going to be taking a speech class with me starting Tuesday, this Tuesday, 8 a.m. at Cameron University. And you ought to see college students. They're young enough. They are, After, like, the first day when they're all kind of nervous, you know, they kind of walk in there. they got their pajamas on. Some of these gals have their hair all messed up and they kind of, this is walking in there and plop down. And, you know, I just tell them, look, I don't feel sorry for you. You know, you got here at 8.05. I was here at 7.25. I woke up at 6. Plus, I got to talk for the next 75 minutes. So you're not going to make me feel sorry for you. But, yeah, I, I got to wake up early because it takes me about 10 or 15 minutes for my eyes to totally kind of refocus and stuff. And uh, you always wonder what's going to happen. But it always always does. But, yeah, uh, when Peter came to himself, uh, he said, wow, this is actually real. This is actually happening. Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth this angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Uh, that tells me something. Zane, Peter wasn't expecting supernatural deliverance necessarily. He'll take it. He's happy to get it. But he wasn't assuming that was going to happen. or I think he would have been more ready to realize what was going on. Kind of reminds me of what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say in Daniel 3. Go back to Daniel 3. Miracles, by definition, are unique. Okay? They don't happen all the time. They, they violate the laws of timing or the laws of physics. Uh, God can't violate the laws 
of physics? Yeah, he can. You know, they, he just puts gravity there 9.8 meters per second so you won't fly off the earth. You know, you can actually live a normal life. But if he wants to violate that or override that would be a better term, right? Do it anytime he wants to. But he does so in unique fashions for his purposes. But, you know, the story, Shadrach, Daniel's out of town. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are told to bow down to the thought police, or actually to the statue there. Uh, and when Nebuchadnezzar, who hates to find out they don't want to bow because they're great government bureaucrats, he wants to keep them around if possible, he kind of gives them another chance. And here's what they say to him in verses 17 and 18. Daniel 3, verses 17 and 18. They say, uh, if it be so, if it's God's will, our God, who we serve, is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. And if it's his will, he'll do that. We have no doubt he can do that if he wants to. But even if he does not, then they're not presuming he will. They're not saying, because I have enough faith, he's got to do it. Faith is not a crowbar we use to pry our will out of God's will. And prayer isn't either. Prayer isn't us naming and claiming and giving God a to-do list. Prayer is a grace channel of communication where we seek and submit to God's will, knowing our very prayers are part of the process whereby he works out his will. So these guys have it right on the nose. If it's God's will, he can deliver us. But even if he doesn't, if it's not his will, he wants us to be martyred here. Let it be known to you, O king, we're not going to serve the gods, your gods, or worship the golden image. Period. Just let, just let you know. Truth in advertising. Go back to Acts 12. I think that was kind of Peter's mindset. Of course he knew. He'd seen the resurrected Christ. Carol, he knew this was no problem for God. But he knew his bud James. Peter, James, and John, those guys were tight together, tight with the Lord. James is gone. Peter's next. It looks like it's going to happen to him too. For me to live as Christ, for me to live as Christ to die is gain. He's just assuming he's out of here. Then this miraculous thing happens in the middle of the night and he kind of comes to and he goes, wow, God has, has delivered me. He's got more stuff for me to do. And their plan against me isn't going to take place. Verse 12. And when he realized this, this was real. He was out yet he's He's public enemy number one, Dr. Digg, okay? Peter is public enemy number one. And you notice after he lets the folks in the church know he's okay, he gets out of town apparently, or he goes into hiding, which is the only smart thing to do. But when he realized this was all happening, it was real, it wasn't a dream, he went to the house of Mary, not Mary the mother of the Lord, but the mother of John, who we know as Mark, Matthew, Mark, that Mark, the guy who wrote the second gospel, uh, who actually gets to be a very close ministry associate of Peter. Um, and that's interesting that uh, that's where this is happening. But he goes, Peter, he just knows the church is going to be praying for him. So he and apparently, hey, remember back in chapter 2, we read that in the early days of the church of Jerusalem, because the poverty was so great, they were pooling a lot of their stuff and living out of that. But I told you that's not a pattern, and it was all voluntary. Mary didn't give the church her house. She's still living in her house. She's letting the church have a prayer meeting there, but not everybody gave away everything, uh, even in Acts, uh, in, in the church in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. So he goes to the house of Mary, the mother of Mark. That's important because Mark's going to go on the first missionary journey next week with Barnabas and Paul, uh, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he, and this is, this is hysterical stuff, and you wouldn't make this up. What do I mean? If these are the events we're reading about in 44, this is this is late summer, early fall, 44 A.D. Look at Harold Hunter's Cambridge Ph.D. dissertation dating the New Testament. He 
verifies all that for you. This is uh, late summer, early fall of 44 A.D. The book of Acts isn't written until about 20 years later. Okay, So as Luke's writing this, if he's making this stuff up to make the uh, events of the early church look heroic to impress people in the 60s A.D., he wouldn't include stuff like this. He includes it because that's what happened. Okay, We see all the, the craziness uh, and... Uh, you know, as an elder in this church for 27 years, you know, you get to see, you don't really see the ugly underbelly. There's not, the underbelly around here is not that ugly. I mean, if we had a few ugly people say a few things, but uh, typically they get over it, you know, in most cases. But uh, I always feel like we get to see kind of a lot of stuff under the radar that only God sees. It's, it's all good. It's, a lot of, it's really a lot of fun to have that vantage point uh, at a place like this. But, uh, yeah, look what happens. Uh, so he goes to this he just assumes they'll be there. So he goes to that house, and when he knocked at the door of the gate, this is some rich person's house. It's pretty fancy. It's got all kinds of elaborate stuff. A servant girl named Rhoda. Rhoda is the word that means rosebud. I always prefer that. Let's call her rosebud. Uh, a servant girl named Rosebud came to answer the door at 2 o'clock in the morning, right? It's probably somebody selling magazine subscriptions or something, right? So you never know. Uh, when she recognized Peter's voice, it's dark, so she can't see him, but she can hear him, uh, because of her joy, because they're praying that he won't get killed tomorrow, she didn't open the gate. She got so excited, she ran back to the prayer meeting and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And with total faith and great theological insight, they said, you are out of your mind. Are you crazy? He's chained to two soldiers. He's tomorrow. He's dead tomorrow. He's dead meat tomorrow. That's why we're praying. So I got a feeling, you know what? Sometimes God answers our prayers despite our doubts. We do the best we can with whatever level of faith we've got and allow him to do his will. And sometimes he'll knock your socks off like here. Uh, they said to her, you're out of your mind. Are you nuts? No way. It'd take a miracle for him to be out there, which is what they're praying for. But she kept insisting, it really is Peter's voice. So they said, it must be his angel. Now, angelos can mean messenger generically. Some commentators will say, uh, that just means he sent a messenger just to say hello, keep praying. Um, that's possible, but I don't think it's what happened. I think this is a, a spirit being, an angel that they're referring to. There was a legend that among Jewish thinkers in the first century that uh, it, just before one's death, his or her guardian angel would come to comfort him and might talk to some of the family members or other relevant people. So they may be thinking that. And I don't think the Bible teaches that, but that's what they're probably thinking, and so that's accurately recorded. That's what they said. But Peter continued knocking. Sometimes, hey, sometimes you got to keep knocking. Okay, Gerald, don't stop knocking, right? When it's the right thing to do. And when they had opened the door, they saw him, the whole prayer meeting, and they were amazed. And notice what it says here, Derek, but motioning to them with his hand to be quiet. I got a feeling when he walked into the room, they acted like maybe, you know, all four of the Beatles were there or something. It was just crazy. They went nuts, you know. They were so excited. And they were probably, number one, they're going to wake the neighbors. This is 2 o'clock in the morning, Michelle, so that's not good. But I got a feeling it's hard to calm them down. So he, and he's, listen, he wants to let them know God's delivered him. And then he needs to, to get out of here because he's public enemy number one. So motioning his hand to them to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison. And he said, report these things to James. Uh-oh. 
It's one of those ugly Bible contradictions. I mean, good night. What are we going to do with this? Chapter 12, verse 2 says, James is dead. Now, Peter's saying, report these things to James. Come on, that's an easy one. That's not a Bible contradiction. What's the solution to that one? He's talking about a different James, right? James the Apostle is gone, but James the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, who is a prominent leader in the church in Jerusalem, and we'll see him in chapter 15 and chapter 21 of this book, uh, needs to be informed, okay? Now that tells me something else. It's not necessarily imperative. James is kind of like Homer, okay? James is one of the leading elders in the church in Jerusalem. James goes to lots of prayer meetings. He's on top of everything. But he probably leads a Bible study that next morning at 6. And he has strategically decided, or more likely his wife has strategically decided, you're not going to pray all night if you're going to teach a Bible study at 6. Plus, you have to wake up at 5 and prepare, you know. No, I'm kidding. He's hopefully he's prepared. So James wasn't there at the prayer meeting, which doesn't mean he's a bad guy. It may mean lots of other things. But Peter says, let the, the elder I really uh, admire the most and one who's got a lot of visibility, let James know and the other brethren that I'm out of here that I've been released. Then he left and went to another place. And we don't hear about Peter very much anymore after this in the book of Acts. We're going to see him in chapter 15 when the uh, uh, kind of the brain trust gets together to deal very specifically with, with this issue about Gentiles and do they have to become Jews before they can believe in Christ and be saved. We've already seen that dealt with by God, but the church needs to hammer that out in their own mind there. And that's about the last time you see Peter in the book of Acts. So he's going to go somewhere, maybe out of town, uh, but uh, he's going into hiding or getting out of Herod's jurisdiction, jurisdiction for sure. Verse 18. Now watch this. When day came, a couple hours later, I'm assuming he got out, Shelby, at 2 in the morning. I don't know that for sure. Okay, You can ask him in heaven. Let's say he left at 2 o'clock in the morning, so it's 2.30 by the time he gets to the prayer meeting, and then he goes to wherever he goes to get out of, out of sight. But when day came, and whenever the sun rose that morning, 6.30 or something, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. What, how, what, the mechanism here, Scott, was such that they were there, but they didn't know what was going on, obviously. They didn't try to uh, resist Peter leaving, and when they... The morning uh, uh, sun came up and the guy realized he was chained to nothing. He thought, we're in a whole lot of hurt here. I mean, how are we going to explain this to the boss kind of thing? Uh, which is a problem, as you're going to see. When Herod uh, had searched for him, had organized a search for Peter and not found him, he examined the guards in order that they be led to execution like right then. No, no appeals, no 10 years and weren't think about it. Uh, then he went down from Judea. Jerusalem is in Judea, up to Caesarea, his capital, and was spending time there just to kind of forget about this. But Peter's gone. They can't find him. That's the bottom line. Wow. Uh, this Antonia Fortress, I forgot I had more stuff here. That's kind of another model. This thing was really a massive thing. And it really, this was designed by the Romans to let even the priests know who was boss so they could watch everything that was going on in the temple courtyard. Right? Uh, let me read what J. Vernon McGee says about the obvious question you have. Why does God allow Herod to uh, arrest James and execute him and then allow him to arrest Peter, but Peter supernaturally at the last minute delivered? I like what J. Vernon McGee said. The answer 
is that this is the sovereign will of God. His unique purpose for these two guys is different. Uh, he still moves like this in the contemporary church. I've been in the ministry for many years, and I've seen the Lord reach in and take certain wonderful members out of the church by death or by being moved all over the country. And then there are, are others whom he has left. Why would he do that? If he'd asked me, and I, I would never think anything like this, trust me. Uh, if he asked me, from my viewpoint as a pastor, I would say he took the wrong one and left the wrong one. But life and death are in the hands of a sovereign God. This is his universe, uh, not ours. God has a plan. He didn't consult you about the plan. It goes back to eternity past. And he's not going to consult you about the plan. He likes it and is perfect and uh, just kind of deal with it. Trust and obey. Uh, this is his universe, not ours. It's God's church, not ours. James, have I ever, have, have ever said, you got to love this thing and God cares a lot more about it than even we do. A whole lot more about it than we do. So that's what keeps you going sometimes. Uh, the hand of a sovereign God moves in the church. I'm going to tell you that James was an apple and Peter was an orange and God had a different purpose and gave James the exact amount of time he needed to do all God wanted him to accomplish in his life and that's all you can do. And he's got a different uh, agenda for Peter. But by the way, if you're thinking Peter missed it, about 20 years after this event, Peter gets crucified upside down in Rome. So... Through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. Look at verse 20. We've seen the death of James, the deliverance of Peter, now the death of Herod Agrippa. Uh, now, Herod was angry with a couple of Phoenician cities north of Israel called Tyre and Sidon. They'd had some political disputes. And with one accord, they want to make up with him. So they came to him and having won over Blastus, who was kind of his secretary of state, the king's chamberlain, they, that is representatives from Tyre and Sidon, the two cities north of Israel, were asking for peace. Let's just get along here because they bought food and other things from uh, Herod Agrippa's uh, kingdom. Their uh, country was fed by the king's uh, country. So on an appointed day, when this delegation from Tyre and Sidon are there, in part to impress them, Herod in Caesarea, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum, rostrum, and began delivering an address to them. And the people present in that theater, if you've been to Caesarea, and many of you have been, that's where he gave that presentation. Um, you've sat there where this happened. Uh, the people kept crying out, this is the voice of a god, not a man. Now Josephus, who was a non-Christian, first century Jewish historian, talks about this situation in more detail, and says that this guy was quite a flashy dresser anyway, but he put on this silver uh, with some gold leaf on it robe. And it was a real sunny day and the sun was bouncing off all this metal in some striking ways. And people were just freaking out like this guy was, you know, like Mick Jagger was in there or something. Like he was some kind of a rock star. And then he got very, very violently ill and, and died. And it's just a historical fact. Uh, and then Luke tells you the same thing that Josephus says. Uh, in part because of blasphemy. They're claiming he's a god and he's apparently lapping it up. And immediately an, an angel of the Lord struck him. The mechanism was whatever physical things. I used to think it was a heart attack, but I was reading some other things this past week uh, because he didn't give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. Now everybody loves that uh, striking reference there. Did you know that was in the Bible? 
Acts 12, 23 says, an angel comes and Herod was eaten by worms and died. How do you picture that? You have this army of worms slowly, and they're not that fast, and you know, slowly sneaking up on him, you know, knocking him down, eating him up. Um, I hate to burst your bubble here, but uh, let me illustrate with my favorite illustration. Uh, Dale made reference to it on a Friday afternoon here. It's the day of the moving party, remember? And from like 11 to 1, it was raining cats and dogs. And I'm going, James, what are we going to do about the moving party? And James had total faith in his weather app. He said, don't worry, by 5 o'clock it'll be fine. But, you know, we say, and it was raining cats and dogs, right? But Myrna, what do I mean by that? Small mammals falling out of the sky? You understand, I don't mean that literally. That's called an idiom. We have a fixed term that means something that literally it doesn't really mean. Or, you know, uh, To be eaten by worms meant to die a sudden, painful death. It was especially applied to tyrants and just bad people with power in, in Koine Greek in the first century. So uh, what happened was he just kind of drops dead or gets violently ill, and a few days later he dies. Now, because uh, some of the commentators want to get worms involved, literally, because they like cat, they cats and dogs are falling from the sky, uh, one doctor who wrote a little commentary on this said, well, obviously he had appendicitis that led to peritonitis complicated by roundworms. Now, that may be the mechanism. I don't know. I didn't do the autopsy personally, but uh, the beaten by worms means a sudden painful death, especially for a tyrant. And so he got his, is the idea. Now, look at verses 24 and 25. But, regardless of the opposition, the deadly opposition, the execution of James, one of the most strategic people uh, of the apostolic band, but the word of the Lord just kept right on growing, and multiplying, and Barnabas and Saul, who had been in Jerusalem with that cash gift to help the church in Jerusalem, returned back to Antioch from Jerusalem when they fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John. Remember uh, the mother of John, better known as Mark, was where they had the prayer meeting? They're bringing Mark with them to Antioch, and that's important because next week we're going to go on the first missionary journey, and Paul, Saul, Barnabas, and Mark are going to start that missionary journey. Unfortunately, Mark's going to kind of give up when the going gets tough and go back home to mom in Jerusalem. But that's another story for another day, right? All right, you know what? Um, Technically speaking, if you analyze the book of Acts, verses 24 and 25 really aren't part of this narrative. They're uh, what uh, commentators call a progress report. When you look at the book of Acts, every couple chapters, Luke will say, hey, this happened and the gospel continued to increase. And then this happened and the gospel continued to get disseminated. And then this happened, political, formal opposition against the church, execution of one of the apostles. But the gospel, the word keeps getting out. And that's what's happening there. The gospel cannot be stopped. Jesus said, look, uh, the truth that I'm the Messiah is the rock upon we're going to build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. They'll win some battles, but we're going to win the war. The gospel is unstoppable. Ask Hitler, uh, Stalin, uh, uh, ISIS, um, all kinds of horrible uh, opponents. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Christ died for our sins and he rose again. Now here's the cool thing, because I'm a sinner 
uh, I owe God a moral debt that I can't pay, and I can't even begin to make that right. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I like 1 John 4 that says, Here is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the payment, the propitiation, satisfaction of wrath by payment, sacrifice, and offering for our sins. Romans 4. But to the one who does not work, how do I access the work of Christ? I don't work for it, but I believe in him, Christ, who justifies the ungodly. The person who believes his or her faith in Christ is reckoned as perfect righteousness. This is a message that's unbelievable, and we're called to believe it. It's supernatural, it's unstoppable, and it blows the uh, all other uh, religions and isms that need to be wasms, you know, like Marxism, fascism, Buddhism, and one day will be wasms uh, right out of the water. There, And watch this. Uh, Sharon Bearden, as a believer, can say this applies to her. There's therefore now because she's a believer, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the gospel is the fact Christ died. The gospel is necessitated because of my sin and my inability and your sin and your inability to save yourself. But as believers, we have the privilege of knowing that we're saved, sealed, and delivered. This is not probation, it's salvation. No condemnation for believers in Christ. Deborah Smith, no condemnation. Justified by faith, we have peace with God. But we also are called not to earn or keep our salvation, but as an expression of our love for the Savior, to to live a whole different lifestyle based on a whole different mindset. And rather than comparing ourselves to others and being self-pitying or resentful of others or God, we need to think totally differently than that. Paul in Romans 12 tells the Romans Christ, Roman Christians, this is not how to be saved, this is how saved people ought to live and think. I urge you, brethren, that's Nancy as much as Scott, brethren, uh, just a collective for fellow believers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, your whole life, a living sacrifice acceptable to God. Don't be conformed to the world, don't be conformed to the, you know, the morals and the values of Central High or uh, Marlowe High or uh, Duncan High. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. How? How are you going to be? How are you going to? How are you going to reprogram your computer? You got to have divine viewpoint. And uh, a good example of this is you got to stop comparing yourself to others. I mean, it's so easy. You got something. You got something in your life that isn't as good as somebody in this building. Isn't as good as nice as you see it, uh, to somebody at a prayer meeting. Maybe their house is better than yours. Maybe their job is better than yours. Maybe their income is higher than yours. Maybe their looks are better than yours. Maybe their family situation is better than yours. Uh, if we sinfully compare ourselves selfishly as if God doesn't know what he's doing with our deficits with somebody else's assets, it's a joy killer, and it's really just serious sin because we're presuming we know better than God. We've got to dare not to compare people, okay? Uh, I've often said, I wonder what uh, James's mother, James and John were brothers. We know Mother Salome. What does she think? In the after- what, do you, what do you think she thinks, Mimi? In the aftermath of uh, Peter interrupting prayer meeting, 
She could easily say, hey, God, I think you've goofed here. You know, we prayed for Peter, and that's great he got out, but we prayed for my boy just as much. In fact, I believed more. I was really sure you were going to save that boy from all that, and he got whacked. What's going on? If you're assuming it's all apples and apples, you're just making a category mistake. I think Salome, we can ask her in heaven and find out, but I think she's going to say, you know what? That was a deep grief, but I never resented Peter's miracle. Never did. Um, you know, I, I, you guys know about Rick Buchanan. You know, you, you know never, Rick never smoked, never chewed tobacco, never did all the stuff that will tend uh, to make you susceptible to oral cancer. But some people get oral cancer that never do any of those things. And he was one of those guys. He just got it. And, you know, you, you think, golly, the Lord, it was up to me. That's a particularly gruesome disease, oral cancer. And, you know, I thought this a lot. Every time me and Tommy would go over there and visit, you know, I'd think, why not some child molester? You know, drop that on him, Lord, or some, you know, horrible, you know, deadbeat dad. You know, let somebody like that deal with this. Why do we have this? Um, in Shreveport at Fellowship Bible Church, we had a, a young pilot. I've mentioned him a couple of times, Rick Spot. Went to the Air Force Academy, just a great guy. Uh, just starting to grow spiritually, and he finds out he's got uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. And we've got several people on our prayer list with with a- ALS. And then uh, uh, remind me of your friend's name uh, with uh, lung cancer. Yeah, yeah. We just put him on the prayer list. You think why him? You know why? Why does God let stuff like that happen? Well, I don't know. But here's what I'll I'll tell you. We don't have enough, and we'll never have enough information to legitimately second-guess God. I'll close with this. What is that? Now, inside golf joke, those were the greens at the U.S. Open. That's an inside golf joke. What's that? What, what is that? Don't be don't be afraid. Okay, well, let me share what that is. That is that. That is that. That's a tapestry. The back of it looks like that. That's the front. As God in heaven, from his point of view, knowing all of the variables, all the trillion times trillion times trillion, almost an infinite number, but not infinite number of variables, he looks down from heaven, he looks at his plan, looks at something like that. We look up, and that's all we see sometimes. And that's when you just got to doubt your doubts. And you just got to take it on faith. You're never going to have enough information to second guess God. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the fact you can do whatever you desire to do with your vessels, including miraculously deliver the apostle here. Uh, even in the aftermath of permitting James uh, to be ushered into your very presence. Forgive us for sh- uh, uh, in a self-pitying kind of way, feel sorry for ourselves because somebody's got a better house or a better job or a better husband or a better pastor or whatever it is out there. <laughs> and uh, help us to realize we're unique. You make the snowflakes, everyone, different. You make each one of us different. you got a different purpose for us. You're going to give us as individual believers exactly the amount of time, talent, opportunity, gifting that we need to be what you want us to be Help us to lock in on that with love and just get after it and be the best believer 
we can be, whether we're in the full-time ministry like James Mitchell or whether we're uh, a young guy just growing up like uh, Henry Ward or um, uh, an elder like uh, Homer Cox or just an average uh, person like uh, Brad McCoy or most of the rest of us. Help us to really lock in like a laser beam on loving you and embracing you and your purposes and your will and to always see the uh, half full part of the glass even when it's hard for us to do that. May our minds be transformed uh, by renewal through uh, the Word of God and the divine viewpoint you give us through passages like this one. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.